Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hey, everyone. I am so happy to be kicking off the second year of the podcast. I can't believe it. Thank you to all of my listeners and all of my guests and all of my supporters. And please go to patreon.com slash indoctrination to help keep the podcast going and become a subscriber. And now on to our guest for today. Ron Burks has a PhD and a Master's of Divinity. He worked for many years at the former Wellspring Retreat and Resource Center, which I loved. It was a wonderful treatment center for people coming out of controlled and abusive environments. Ron and I have often run into each other over the years while speaking at or attending similar conferences. He and his wife, Vicki, also a mental health professional, wrote the book, Damaged Disciples. And Ron has also written about the similarities between cultic experiences and addiction, which he's going to talk a little bit about during his interview with me. His own personal experiences have led him into this field of study and helping others who have been through similar experiences. He'll talk about his experiences, actually, in both part one and part two of my conversation with him. Here's Ron Burks. So I am so happy to have Ron Burks on the podcast today. And I've known you for a very long time. But what I realize is with a lot of people I've known for a long time, I don't know how many opportunities we've had to actually sit down and talk, right? We've been sort of coming and going at conferences or you were presenting or whatever was happening or I was presenting you kind of past each other. And we saw, saw each other recently in Philadelphia. I got to see you and your lovely wife and, uh, and you were both, you're both so good, so smart, so committed to this field. And then after talking to you this week, really conferring with you about a situation that I'm dealing with, I realized that what a trove of wisdom and experience you are. And so I'm so happy to have you to chat with today. Well, with an introduction like that, I can hardly wait to hear what I'm going to say. (laughs) That's a funny line. I like that. Yeah, Yeah, so that makes two of us. So then let's start by just having you introduce yourself from your perspective, a little bit about your history and the work that you do now. Yeah, well, the, uh, what got me into this field was that um, um, my wife and I were in an in a, uh, authoritarian church, cultic church, for 16 years. And um, you know, when I left that, went to graduate school for several years and then did an uh, internship at Wellspring Retreat and resource center that turned into a job and ended up being the clinical director there for, for several years. And uh, uh, then came back after the death of the founder, Paul Martin, uh, mm-hmm. to be, um, uh, to head up the, uh, you know, the board. So you're a busy guy though. You're busy doing a lot of different things. Uh, and um, with your work and this work and other work, uh, you have a full week. Yes, the, what pays the bills is that um, uh, my wife and I both work as uh, substance abuse and mental health counselors at the local hospital here in Tallahassee, mm-hmm. and we have an uh, intensive outpatient program, so that allows us to have uh, 
days off here and there that we can uh, mm-hmm. uh, can do this work. So, right, right. Something that that we've talked about before on the podcast is uh, the addictive piece of some of this. So your work with substance abuse, you know, I'm sure there is some carryover just with that kind of being drawn into something that you think is going to fix your problems, um, and it winds up really sending your life into some upheaval instead. Yeah, there are there are a lot of things that do cross over between the two things. And uh, particular interest to me is the uh, uh, the neuroscience part. Um, there are several things about being in a cult that uh, seem to affect the brain in the same way as, as substances. Uh, maybe not to the, as extreme an extent, but it is enough to gradually over time damage the ability to make uh, informed choices about the cult itself, just as the addict gradually loses the ability to make informed choices about their use of the drug or alcohol. Hmm. Uh, you know, and so it appears to be the same, you know, the same neurotransmitters, the same pathways in the brain that, um, uh, you know, that affect the same areas. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of research to be done, but, uh, but it, it looks very very interesting the that uh, also um you know helps to you know to to grasp that the the reason i stayed was not um you know because i was stupid (laughs) a lot of people in you know in substance abuse when they look back at their experience and the number of times that they decided this is it no more this does not work for me Mm-hmm. And then two days later, they're right back. And, uh, you know, and, you know, and then their friends will ask them, why are you doing this to yourself? And the answer almost always is, I don't know. You know, yeah, that's just me. And um, uh, someone af- actually asked me, me about, you know, when I was talking, just a friend outside the group that I was talking to. And they said, well, why would you want to be a part of a group like that? you know and you know uh there were a lot of positives but um you know um he wasn't buying the positives (laughs) he could see the negatives real clearly but he couldn't quite grasp you know how great it was to be on the cutting edge of what god was doing on the earth and you know and uh uh, being part of a special elite that you know not going not only going to be benefit the whole world but also you know the uh, entire church so right a little bit more about, uh, if you can, the neuroscience part of it, because that is very interesting. And I think it also helps people understand how we're all vulnerable and susceptible, uh, depending on the timing, depending on the stimuli, and, and that it's a, I think it's an important message. And so you were talking about the pathways. Can you talk a little bit kind of more about what we've learned about what the draw is and what the hold is? Well, one of the things we do know is that um, being certain about something is um, does release dopamine. It's the same in, in the survival reward center of the brain. There's something about being sure mm. that um, you know that is that is part of our you know of our survival DNA, survival system. And um, the so many things in life, you know, you can't be completely black and white sure about. Right. And so, um, you know, our brains tend to like 
something that's, you know, that is, you know, that, uh, you know, says, no, this is how it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, it seems to me that it seems some of the research I'm seeing seems that the more extreme, the more intense, the, you know, the sense of we're right and other people, you know, are, I mean, to be nice or, you know, are, you know, way yet to be informed. But, you know, it's not intoxicating like a drug is, but it seems to, you know, to work the same pathways, you know, having, having experience here and there, you know, of having something confirmed that, yes, I was right all the time, especially when something has to do with human rights, where you thought this just can't be right. You know, and then you meet other people and you find out that, yes, this this is a problem, like the Me Too movement, for instance, you know, and there's a there's a sense of, you know, of satisfaction that, yeah, what I suspected all along was indeed right. You know, and that's, I think, really what that system is for so that we can join together and do things that, you know, that are important. The problem is that, uh, you know, cults make you think that what you're doing is joining together for things that are important but but eventually it boils down to what you're doing is part of the self-aggrandizement of the people in leadership that's you know that's where the problem is it's it's the it's the it's the deceptive part and that's actually much like you know the addiction cycle is that you know these systems are here for a reason that to so that we like stuff that we like things that add to our survival all of these chemicals, there's 50 or so plants around the world, alcohol, different different chemicals that we can generate that uh, right. cause unusual releases of the neurotransmitter dopamine in the survival reward system of the brain uh, artificially when they have nothing to do with, with survival. Well, but the survival reward system tends to believe, well, this is very important. And this is a because a little release of dopamine means means good for survival. A lot must mean even better, better for survival. Right. Yeah. So uh, so the, eventually the survival reward center gets hijacked by the drug or the or alcohol. And so when you try to stop, your own survival system says no, 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 no. This is important for your survival. So it could very well be that you know that that's that there's a similar d- dynamic like that in you know in being involved in a cult. It's interesting as you're talking about it as a survival mechanism because it shows how hard it is to shake it then. And also it explains some of the language around addiction that people say that they have to have it or that they need it. So there is something within your system that's giving you that sense that you have to have it and that you need it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and what's interesting is that is that there's a phenomenon where, you know, you want it. You want the drug, but you don't really like it. Mm. You don't like what it's doing to you, mm-hmm. but you just can't can't stop the wanting. And that's really where it gets to be a real problem. And there's a there's a very similar phenomenon in cults. Uh, a lot of people that I talk to at Wellspring and in the you know private counseling that I do now, uh, they've known for years that this was not right for them. They didn't want to keep doing this, mm-hmm. but they could not not do it. Mm-hmm. You know, every time they would decide to leave, something would come up that would, you know, that made it seem to make sense that they should stay. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, um, you know, it, so it locked them in. And, and uh, 
and part of that, of course, is the dynamics of the group and the mm -hmm. the way that you know that language is used, and you know, and and, and the biggest thing uh, factor is that sometimes our problem is our own brain. Once we get hooked in, mm -hmm. it can be very difficult to mm -hmm. you know to disentangle from a you know um, you know from a lifestyle that has been has had a lot of it, a lot of rewards. Okay. Yeah, so I know there's so much for us to talk about. Can we stay on this for a moment just about then if it is something that we, our brains kind of betray us in this way, how does it get undone? What, if, what have you found out with your research, with your work? What are some of the processes that are helpful? I know it's going to be different for different people. And, and sometimes when people have to go through kind of a detox, it needs to happen a couple of times until yeah, they're sure. ready or their life kind of supports them doing that. And uh, yeah. so it's not immediate necessarily, but what have you found has been helpful? Well, there's usually something that breaks through the, the control of the group to where you're getting information from the outside. Uh, and often that, is, that it comes from ex-members. Mm -hmm. who most of the time are told to dis disavow them because, of course, they don't uh, they couldn't measure up to uh, right. the standards of the group, and right. so they're automatically suspect. You know, you have they have to be suspect. Mm -hmm. But when an ex member or someone who is, has really close knowledge of the group explain or mentions things that you also see as being problems in the group that really shouldn't exist in a group that is so focused on being so perfect and and having such a cosmic purpose and uh, but you, we learn to live with the inconsistencies but after a while the uh, you know getting information from the outside seems to start the process of breaking up the the lock that uh, our brains have about you know doing something like this which is interesting just to jump in which is why so many of these groups keep you from being able to access information from the outside or confer sure. with anyone else because sure. i guess they mm -hmm. know that it holds this power yeah mm -hmm. yeah okay okay go ahead sorry you know that that's that's usually what's that's the process that that's how the process starts okay. but but um uh, and it can come as many different ways as there are members of groups you know mm -hmm. this is not necessarily a pattern but there are certain things that seem to be common with the you know with the process of of you know leaving you know this basically it's a love relationship with you know with a cause and um you know and it and it and it's a cause that gives you a sense of purpose and meaning and uh one of the things that makes it so hard is that you realize that if you do admit to yourself that there are fraudulent elements to this and that mm -hmm. yes, it could be completely fraudulent that, um, you know, that where am I going to be then? You know, right. it's, uh, you know, it is a, it is a great loss. Right. A yeah. great loss. And, and I also in terms of that high and the sense of knowing that that's something that doesn't necessarily get replaced. And that is, that is no. very hard for people. I have met people who, you know, had in, in the group, they had 125 people working for them. They were flying around the world to different mm -hmm. centers of the group, you know, um, you know, as, as a troubleshooter. And um, they were, of course, not making any money. It was all expected for them to do. They were mm -hmm. full time with the group. And so they're, yeah, right. you know, you know, but uh, when they came out of the group, of course, they didn't have a college education. Um, they had no real sellable skills. 
<laughs> you know, that uh, uh, that you could put on a resume that would, you know, that a company would be interested in you at that level of supposed expertise. Yeah, yeah, you don't, you don't look it on paper, right? Yes. <laughs> and so, yes, a lot of people have had a lot of responsibility, have run things, like you're saying, have reached this pinnacle within a group. It doesn't translate into mm -hmm. the world outside. Yeah, that is very hard to feel like you have to start again and what that does to the ego also. Yeah, what people find on the other side is that, yes, some of these skills actually do translate. Uh, some of the things that you do are not lost, and they will enhance your, you know, your functioning later on. But there's quite a gap between the, you know, function in the group and being able to, you know, and being able to, um, you know, reach your peak performance level outside the group. Ah, uh, yeah, right. You know, and right. that's where the morning comes in. Mm, mm-hmm. Okay, which I'm sure you've dealt a lot with helping people through the morning process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what have you noticed helps with that, with the morning? Well, the morning usually occurs sometime after the person begins to realize they have been betrayed. Mm. And um, there has to be anger in the process. Usually at Wellspring, we had kind of a running, you know, commentary that, you know, people came depressed and left angry. If that's the case. We'd done our, we'd done our job. Uh -huh, uh -huh. You know, they were sad. They were down on themselves. They thought they would never be able to uh, accomplish anything because look how I was so, you know, I was duped and all this sort of thing. Or they still believed that the group was right and they had not measured up. Somehow, uh, right, right. You know, and, um, you know, so either way they were depressed and, um, the, the, it, but it was wonderful to see the transition between being depressed and blaming themselves to recognizing the, the fraudulent processes by which they came to believe whatever it was they believed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't, we didn't talk about beliefs unless the person wanted information, you know, about different right. things. But uh, we talked about the process. And mm -hmm. after a while, they would find that the process that by which they came to believe this particular group was unique in 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 its aspects when they found that was fraudulent then things really begin to come apart okay right yeah. right i've noticed too and i don't know if you've seen this that the sadness and depression is a more comfortable i mean comfortable it's very unpleasant but it's a more comfortable emotion than anger for people coming out of these experiences mm -hmm. and so to get to the place where you can not just be angry at yourself, like you're saying that you abandoned the mission and you couldn't measure mm -hmm. up and what's wrong with you and all the self-talk, but to, re to direct it outward, to do something that was inherently unsafe within the group or within your family unit or whatever the culty part was, or that somehow uh, that's unspiritual of you and God's going to be unhappy with you. To get people to feel they have the right and that it's safe to have their anger, you know, I just wonder about that process. What have you noticed? How do you help people get there and feel okay about their anger? Yeah, anger, um, because that's that's was the psychological part about what we do is, you know, uh, anger is not, you know, it's, it's sometimes mislabeled as a negative emotion. There aren't mm. really such thing as a negative emotion. There's a reason we have all of the emotions that we have. 
And anger can be very beneficial in getting us to actually make a lifestyle change. Mm. And um, it, that's really where we get the energy to make major lifestyle changes that we have mm. to make. And um, when we allow ourselves to accept that we have been duped mm. and that it is not our fault, mm-hmm. it was someone else who we thought cared about us, you know, and we find out they really didn't and in many cases didn't even have the capacity to care about anyone but themselves. That is when the the anger builds. Yes, it can be uncomfortable unless you're in a context where you can sort of hear stories from other people and how their anger got Mm -hmm. turned into useful behavior changes. And that's really what the key for the anger is. That's why the anger is so important as part of the process of of getting the, it's one thing to get out of the group, but it's another thing to get the group out of you. And anger is a big piece of that. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, it's not, after a while, you realize it's not so much anger at the group itself and its particular thing. You realize it's anger at a phenomenon that is part of the human condition, and you know, and that is deception. And, uh, you know, and that's really where, uh, you know, where the healing begins to happen. You know, is it because when you when you move away from wanting to strike back at those that have hurt you and sometimes for a lifetime, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and have kept you from living, you know, a, um, you know, a life that, you know, most people would find much more meaningful than the one you did in the group. Things mm-hmm. that you now realize, I wish I could have done these. And for some, it's too late. Um, right. Some of us left before we started building a retirement account. <laughs> And so, mm-hmm. so we, you know, so that uh, uh, these it does leave big holes in your life, holes in your resume, trying to you know start your career at forty, you know, sure, um, you know, or later, depending or later. on the group, right, mm-hmm. right. And I think going back to this uh, deception and you know it's such a betrayal, especially when you when you're raised with it uh, and it's what you knew that was your world, or you got involved to heal you from something. I mean, you were coming from a vulnerable place or you just mm-hmm. had such an open heart. It hurts all the more to know that you were lied mm-hmm. to, uh, know that you were betrayed. Sometimes people ask me, you know, when they ask about fundamentalist branches of religions and what's the difference between that and a cult. And the thing that I come back to a lot is the deception, that it's not mm-hmm. what it said it was and the leader isn't who he or she really says they are. What are some other distinctions, if there are distinctions, between really strict fundamentalist branches of religions and moving into how you would define a cult? Well, in many cases, the beliefs themselves are not usually the problem unless the beliefs have been, have been generated by the leader's psychopathology. That happens a lot. Okay. You know, we have some unique beliefs in a group that you know, that are the means of justifying some, some hurtful behavior, some, you know, on the part of the founder, you know, Mm -hmm. or to satisfy their own self in some way that they were right about this. And, uh, uh, you know, so in in some cases, you know, beliefs have to be challenged when they, when they are simply, you know, self-destructive or, you know, to carry, carry them logically, they're destructive Mm -hmm. of other people's Mm -hmm. interests. Mm-hmm. Those beliefs do need to be challenged, and that's a very personal experience. Mm-hmm. Treatment is more of a guidelines on, you know, on how to how to measure. But on, you know, but the the person who leaves the group 
is in the process of of rebuilding a value system mm-hmm. that makes sense to them. You know, and so as they begin to do that, most of the time they find that many of the things that were held in high esteem in the group don't really fit their value system and doesn't don't really make real logical sense on the outside. Um, mm-hmm. Many groups. Mm-hmm. I remember going to a philosophy of religion class and. Um, one of the comments this was made in a lecture was the ends justify the means is a bankrupt ethical system. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, in our group, we use the term, well, sometimes you have to crack a few eggs to make an omelet. And, you know, this wasn't every day in the group, but, you know, it, I had kind of gotten the impression that once in a while, there are things that have to be done you know, mm-hmm. for the good of the order, the good of the, uh, to be confronted with a, with a real, you know, professional ethicist, you know, uh, and, mm-hmm. and how, you know, um, you know, how, uh, um, you know, ethics are actually done in human interactions. And that been long after I got out of the group. Right. I was already in graduate school when that, uh-huh. when that okay. Right. Well, you know, you, you expect that within big business, politics, mm-hmm. you know, more than a few eggs are cracked. Mm-hmm. Uh, more than a few omelets are made. <laughs> uh, but you expect more. You expect yes. something different from right a place like God's home. You yes. know. Um, and so when that starts to happen within a sacred space, how do you think people make sense of it? Well, it's. It's a, you know, I, I have um, heard varying descriptions from um, biologists about this, but it is the sort of the frog in the kettle analogy. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. You know, I've, right. I've had, I've had some, of course, living here in Florida, I've met some marine biologists and they're a little skeptical about that, you know, but uh, <laughs> whether that would actually be true. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. Frogs, even frogs know hot when they see it you know, I, they, I would hope so i would yeah. hope so i always felt but, bad for frogs when people use those analogies but yeah. Yeah, so good i'm glad it's not always true okay but there there is some truth into the fact that we do get you know uh, the the in in the substance abuse field the term is tolerance you know we sort of begin to tolerate the um you know the effect of and our body changes and adapts to the presence of the drug or the presence of alcohol. And so it takes more to get the same effect. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I think that we can, we encounter, you know, uh, these, these anomalies between what we perceive as the values of the group mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, and what actually happens. And, you know, we explain one way here, we justify this one. And then after a while, another one occurs and we, justify that one you know and then another one occurs and then we justify that one and so gradually you know the offenses against the perceived value system get wider you know the gap between the two things gets wider and wider and we learn to tolerate more and more deviance from what we had originally gotten into okay right and i guess also mixed with that usually built into that system is that uh, if you are feeling uh, upset about what's happening or you're feeling in conflict that you need to reflect on that, what does that mean about you rather than yes. the larger organization? So you might then 
have this sort of um, learned blindness, you know, that you then yeah. turn the focus inward and don't notice what you really need to be noticing or feel wrong, even feeling critical of it. Yeah, it's um, it's always um, eye opening to uh, after you leave a group to look back at the things that you um, that didn't even meet your own twisted value system in the group, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but yet that you set them, you know, you set your values aside because there seemed to be some, mm -hmm. you know, some uh, cosmic importance to do that. And yeah. uh, a lot of people experience that, you know, especially, you know, in sexual matters in, you know, where there's a very high, mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, moral values in the group. And it's almost like the higher the moral value, the, you know, the more, uh, uh, the more, um, you know, crazy the, you know, sexual problems become in the leaders. You know, mm. when the people are held to the, you know, to the higher the standard the people are held to, the lower the standard the, the, the leaders seem to have to have. That's very interesting. That's very interesting. So how do you, how do you understand that? Why is there then this kind of, pendulum swing, this huge gulf. Well, you're dealing with someone who is, you know, they have gotten used to getting things their way. Uh, yeah. And so what they're, they have to come up with is some shtick, some explanation about why I'm different. And uh, there's a classic examples of David Koresh that, you know, had this elaborate, you know, uh, teaching on the, you know, on the uh, um, House of David, you mm -hmm. know, which required him to you know, to sex with underage girls. And it actually, you know, the doctrines that he kept spending, eventually the, the fathers, you know, would be in a situation where they felt it was an honor if he had been, you know, he was had mm. felt that that was what he should do. Mm -hmm. So it's turning the whole value system upside down using, you know, using the oratorical skills or, or the influence skills that the person has. It isn't necessary in a cult for the person to be charismatic or even to be a, a mesmerizing orator. Hmm. You know, there are just certain personalities that, you know, that have ways of communicating that disarm our warning system. Interesting. Yes. And so you don't have to be charismatic and you don't have to be, I guess, a good talker. So what is it that you learn to read people that you are kind of intimidating enough that people feel they need to listen to you? What What are the other ways that people become sort of Pied Pipers? Well, there's a there seems to be a learned ruthlessness that, um, you know, that leaders have that can be masked behind, you know, one, one person referred to it as the velvet covered brick. Ah, okay. Where you know where there's a uh, the person is so is so ruthless that they can be disarming your they disarm your your the arguments defenses. before yeah. you even you know yeah. can can frame them and it's but it's all done in a you know in in a deceptive way so that you don't actually see what what's behind it the pathology that's behind it. Right. Okay. Okay. And then I guess also if you feel that the person in charge no matter how ruthless, is speaking for God. Well, that's right. And often the leader will say, well, this is what God said. I know it's tough. I'm not, you know, I don't understand it either. Mm, okay. You know, I'm, but, but, you know, 
everything ha happens for a reason, you know. So I'm sure there's some reason why this needs to be this way. Right. So and there's from, all kinds of play, you know, wordplay yeah. like that that right. can, you know, disarm your, you know, your your arguments. The the thing that um, that we found at Wellspring was because uh, everyone got a little uh, mini mental status, you know, exam in the you know, in the uh, intake process, mm -hmm. and uh, and we had a long intake process, so we had time to do all of it. And there were several of them that are really sort of down and dirty uh, shortcuts to discovering if a person is quick on the uptake. We call that IQ. Mm -hmm. And what we found was that the um, all the people who came to Wellspring were certainly average or above. Mm -hmm. so they scored way higher on those than. You know, we had very few people who could not immediately nail the different, you know, mental status items that had to do with intelligence. Mm -hmm. And the yeah. director was an expert on uh, uh, IQ testing, you know, that he did on the side. And, uh, you know, so he knew the correlations. And he said, this is, you know, this is amazing to have all of these people at this level of, you know, of processing power. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is they certainly were of a higher IQ than the leader of the group. There was something that the, lead, the leader of the group wasn't nearly as quick on the uptake as they were, you know, and more, the, and, and they would often say that, you know, when they sort of come out of the spell and they would talk about the leader, they would say, you know, he really wasn't that sharp. You know, we have, sometimes have the, the, you know, some, now some cult leaders are what you could call an evil genius, but many of them yeah. are not. Yeah. Many of them, you know, get away with what they do by just appealing to our lower nature. I mean, there's a famous uh, swindler, someone who was, had done several Ponzi schemes and uh, uh, had among his, you know, his clients, some of the best and brightest, you know. Mm -hmm. and, um, and when he was in prison, he was interviewed and he said, all I do is just appeal to their vanity. Wow. And, and then, of course, you could once he appealed to their vanity, then he could appeal to their greed, and then, you know, he could get their money. So then, finding your way in, whether it is vanity, if it's business, or fear, uh, immortality, whatever it is, safety. Mm -hmm. I guess just seeing what what will cause that the door to open, yeah. and then you can walk right in. I wonder if you think that at the end of the day, if it matters, if the person actually believes that they're speaking for God or that they're making up that they're speaking for God, that the impact that it has on the people around them, um, because you might not know, you might not know if you're listening to it, if it really is that that person believes it, or if they're just crafting it, because I feel like the end result would be the same. What have you seen? That that's exactly what I've seen is that is that it almost doesn't matter. There are certain leaders that when you look at you know you know at their their style and the way they did things, you know they really did not for one minute believe what they were putting out, mm -hmm. but they found other people would, and so they just mm -hmm. kept adding to it and adding to it and building mm -hmm. building it and everything else, and, mm -hmm. you know you know higher light, you know more revelation you know, deeper research, you know, all of these things, you could, you know, every group has their own terms that they refer to their mm -hmm. unfolding cosmology. Mm -hmm. And um, 
but that's they seem to be in the minority. Now, one of the most terrifying uh, examples of leaders is when they start out uh, knowing that they're going to con the people. And then after a few months or years, they actually start believing their own con. Mm. Once again, the Dave, David Koresh is a, you know, is an, is an example of that. He actually, you know, his, his sidekick, you know, Mark Bro wrote in his book about, you know, that he thought it was kind of a big joke. They were acting like they were big time religious, you know, um, you know, special people. And, um, you know, it was all, you know, in fun. And he, then he came up with this thing about, um, you know, the house of David, you know, which was a little much for, you know, for, for his buddy, for Mark Rowe. And, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, but then what finally did it was that it wasn't just that he was teaching it, but he said it, the thing that frightened him the most was in six months, he, you know, he knew his friend, he knew Vernon Howe, you know, David Craig, you know, he knew him and he, and he, he said he really, after a while he was, he really believes this. He had fallen prey to his own con. That might also be, you know, why a lot of leaders really sincerely believe what they believe, but they didn't start out that way. I wonder if that was the same for Jim Jones. I mean, you know, these are the, because, you know, people say, well, if he's someone who's sort of this uh, person who crafted this, this whole uh, community to, uh, to his yeah. ego, why would he also have killed himself? on the day or had himself be killed on the day of the mass suicide, unless Mm -hmm. he started to believe something, you know, I, it could be that he just didn't want to get caught uh, and have to take responsibility for this, or that he really did believe in the, the paranoid thoughts that he was, you know, transmitting to his community. And I guess this can happen. I mean, we're citing large kind of famous examples, but even in these sort of mom and pop groups, um it echoes the same thing thing. yeah Yeah. okay okay and the other part about some of these uh intensive religious organizations is that there's something very appealing just if you look at the the transcendent nature of it the the speaking in tongues the you know Mm -hmm. the moments where you have the kind of hypnotic trance that that something there's nothing wrong with it in and of itself, right? It's that moment of fervor or, or excitement. I, I think about, I was just talking to someone about this yesterday, about sometimes when I go to uh, my synagogue and everyone is singing together and singing and taking different harmonies or whatever, you know, I get goosebumps. Whether it is that I feel like I'm communicating with anything else or just having a moment where I have forgotten about everything else, you know, uh, it feels kind of delicious you know like yeah. mm, I want it to last I'm upset when the song is over or the prayer is over and so I think that you know for people to know we're not saying don't have these experiences it's oh, that's just, right. right it's just that some people will take advantage of people's openness to those experiences or use them I guess for a different yeah. kind of purpose um well, one of the things that that um, mainstream religions have done for thousands of years is that uh, I believe they recognized the hypnotic effect of the religious practices, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they also realized that people are very, very suggestible. 
when they experience these moments of singing together or you know the different mm-hmm. different thing exercises mm-hmm. spiritual exercises mm-hmm. and so there's always been a very strong emphasis on the the learned are the only ones who are the ones that are to interpret and to uh, address the congregation with the, with the message so to speak mm-hmm. the message is reserved only for those that are that are educated and I don't mean program. I'm talking about they have they have serious skills in, you know, both language and in interpretation, you know. And so uh, there was a, you know, there there was a, a, a tremendous emphasis on faithfulness to the to, to ancient writings. And when that is the case, there's a cognitive safety that comes in a fellowship of people who are having transcendent experiences. You know, when the doctrines that they're hearing remain logical, they remain reasonable, and they don't violate their value systems. They are consistent with the value system. In other words, they are what they say they are. There's integrity. You know, and when there's integrity, you can have all kinds of experiences like this. You know, it just it enhances your enjoyment of life. Mm. The the where it becomes a problem is when each of these becomes a, a rule. Uh, we had one group, for instance, that um, required people uh, to, uh, they, I mean, speaking in tongues was part of what they did, and they required people to speak in tongues at least eight hours a day. Oh, no. Well, that's a, speaking in tongues is a very uh, dissociative experience. It's, it's like meditation. And, um, you know, there, there's no indication in any you know, sacred writings that, you know, this was something that was done all the time. You know, this particular group, you know, that said, that's what you're supposed to do. Well, what they then, what they did is now they had a group of people who were very success, suggestive all the time. It enabled the control to be very simple, you know, because, yeah. um, you know, they were already in a suggestible state. Uh, right. Okay. Wow. Same way with, same way with groups that, you know, that uh, require long hours of meditation. Yeah, I I've treated some people who have dealt with those extended periods of being in a trance, being or meditating, mm-hmm. and they have a very hard time, um, not just without trying, sort of slipping. Fall, yeah, and mm-hmm. kind of, or falling into this kind of liminal space in between, kind of daydreaming, mm-hmm. and. Um, and they have to work to stay present, yes. uh, to feel mm-hmm. their feet on the ground, hold on to a chair that's next to them, just mm-hmm. remind yeah. themselves to be aware of their senses. It's hard. It's hard to shift back. I mean, these people are really having their, their minds played with, but just also, yes, to be more vulnerable in that state. Eight hours a day of really doing anything that's... Mm-hmm hypnotic or translate um i know people have talked about needing to sit through like the large group awareness trainings you know without a bathroom break with you know and just sitting and listening and uh you can't fall asleep and you can't seem disinterested and you have to be on 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 and um and through all hours of the night uh it really does test people and for what purpose, really? You know how it's it's seen somehow as being for your benefit, but at the end of the day, it is not. It's for selling the next level course. 
one more thing before you go. Ron discussed something during the first part of our conversation together that I wanted to get into a little bit more. He talked about getting information from the world outside the environment you're in and that it can break through the control. And as he put it, it breaks the lock, the lock in your mind. And the reason that you're kept from outside information is that people controlling you know that. That's why they often limit access to outside information. No TV, no internet, no contact with your family outside, no contact with people who have left, and definitely no listening to this podcast. It happens with people in certain relationships, certain families, certain cultic groups, certain very controlling environments in general, and also some countries. Information is power. And information can also inform people's ability to have independent thought, their own opinions. One of the powers it possesses also is the power to confirm your suspicions, the doubts you're already having. And therefore, the things that you didn't feel were right somewhere deep down, you find out, yeah, they're actually not right. They're not factual, or they're not what you have to believe. Another power information possesses is that it proves people wrong and contradicts their absolute teachings, and people controlling you don't want that risk, and they don't want that threat. Another power that it possesses is that it shows you that information in and of itself isn't dangerous. There is a particular group that will tell you that you're going to get cancer if you expose yourself to their kind of private, sacred, secret teachings before you are ready. It's just dangerous to the person who can't emotionally handle you having your own educated opinion, who can't handle losing control over your mind and can't handle being proven wrong. There are people raised in remote and isolated areas who have never met people of other cultures and sometimes when they do, it opens their eyes to the world outside. This can go well or go poorly depending on the interaction, but there are communities that are fundamentally built upon a sense of superiority, not just separation. And they're built on paranoia and intolerance towards anyone different, and sometimes on the desire to whip the community into a froth, into that kind of torch and pitchfork aggression that they say is about the survival of their own kind, but instead is really just about the destruction of those who are different. When people are trapped behind walls in compounds, not allowed to leave their communities, not allowed to have any interaction with those deemed to be different, their lack of interaction with those on the outside keeps things admittedly simple, very black and white, without the emotional and spiritual conflict that comes with exposure to others who are different, who might kind of introduce you to other ways of thinking. But if people didn't actually interact with each other, then the following would never be possible. There was a recent story about a woman named Angela King, a member of a group of skinheads, a neo-Nazi, with the Hitler salute Sig Heil tattooed inside of her bottom lip. 
She and her friends were excited about what a full-on race war would be like. And after a violent robbery that she participated in, she was arrested. And while in a federal detention center, a Jamaican woman befriended her. And as they spent time together, other Jamaican women who happened to be there took her under their wing. And something very interesting happened. Her very powerful racist teachings and beliefs suddenly started slipping away. It wasn't who she was. And these women who showed her compassion took away the power of her superior and hateful teachings. And then after being sent from the detention center to jail, she met another Jamaican woman and they fell in love. Angela is now free, has a degree, and has met with and learned from many people she had originally been taught to hate, including having met with Holocaust survivors. Similarly, ex-homophobes, ex-racists, ex-anti-Islamists, anti-Semites talk about finding it actually a natural shift into acceptance, respect, and a clear awareness of equality after getting information about the other that was accurate. And also interacting with those communities and seeing how their original fears, their original hatred, their original ingrained misconceptions and programming had really had no way of abating if they had stayed isolated within their families or communities. But as we think again about Ron's message, about how accessing information can break through the control, sometimes there is information that can be overlooked, but is so powerful when you're told that this way of thinking and believing is the best way, the true way, the only way to have a good life, and the only way to keep you safe. And that information that is overlooked, but so powerful, is when you find out that people who have left the fold are fine, really fine. Sometimes their lives are better, healthier, happier than they were before. So when you have left and things are really okay and you run into someone who is still within that community, you don't have to argue your point or convince them they're wrong. You can just be you. You can just represent the life that you have. You can be warm, be standing up tall and smiling, and then you start to prove to them that they don't have to be afraid to leave. And even before you have said a word to them, you've actually spoken volumes. Talk to you next week. Indoctrination is available for download on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Subscribers receive bonus episodes, interviews, and other cool goodies. Send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.